early days, it's like you're flying a biplane and you can stick your head out the window and kind of know what direction and you're, you're turning that plane left or right. But at some point you are flying a 787 and you can't rely on that. You have to rely on instrumentation. Otherwise you're going to crash the plane and you have to trust, not your senses. You got to trust the instruments. Um, and I, I would, I would draw analogy. You also have to, in a real company, you also have to get the qualitative, you know, kind of dig in deep, but you have to have things well instrumented. Otherwise you can't keep up with all the things that are happening. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week, I chat with Vivek Sharma, co-founder and CEO of Movable Inc. Now, Movable Inc. has created a marketing solution that helps brands work data into personalizing content. Basically, they help businesses leverage their data to help customize content and marketing messages. And it works. I think it's no surprise that when companies switch from a one-size-fits-all marketing model to customize content, they tend to see large increases in engagement. Vivek started his career as an engineer and salesman, making him a bit of a double threat as a startup founder. During this chat, we discuss the ins and outs of Movable Inc., some important lessons he's learned while growing the company and adding so many employees, his perspective on capitalizing startups, and much, much more. He also takes a minute to share a startup horror story about when a change in Gmail's policies almost made their entire product obsolete. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Bowery Legal. Bowery Legal provides a complete range of legal services to high-growth companies. They do everything from formation, employment, partnership agreements, stock grants, corporate matters, and venture capital and debt financings. If you're interested in learning more, visit BoweryLegal.com. Vivek, what's up, man? Thanks for being on the show today. What's going on? Good to see you, Mark. All right. Well, let's start this off. Do you mind giving a quick, you know, 30-second, 60-second background on who you are? And then we'll jump yeah. into the company. Yeah, I'm Vivek Sharma. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Movable Inc. And um, I grew up in Massachusetts, lived out in Silicon Valley, Bay Area, right after school, worked in some interesting companies, Cisco Systems, the first year I was out of school, uh, a company called Blue Martini Software, which was a CRM pioneer. Uh, I was an engineer. I, I wrote code, uh, core engineering team, and that was what I did for a bunch of years. And then a couple of weird left and right terms to, turns took me into uh, a sales role in a couple of companies. So diametrically opposite of all of that. And then uh, that kind of led me some years ago, I think the end of 2010, which is around when we met, uh, to start Movable Inc. And I think we actually met in a precursor of Movable Inc. that, that failed. Uh, thankfully, yes. so Movable Inc. could arise out of the ashes. Yes, you're, you're one of those founders with some scar tissue, but you, you turned it into something fantastic. Yeah. That's awesome. That's the way to do it. You got to fail a little bit. You do. do you want to give an overview of Movable Inc. just so people you know know what's, sure. what we're talking about here? Yeah. So every every single business, especially enterprises, wants to put the customer at the center of everything of all their marketing. But people are moving through different steps of their journey through different devices and the channel of their choosing. And these big businesses have made investments in data, organizing their data, and they often have a messaging platform, usually channel specific, so email marketing, SMS marketing, etc. But what they haven't really thought about is that people don't experience data, they experience content. So what's missing is all these channels, great targeting, great segmentation. It doesn't work if everyone's getting a generic piece of content on the other side. So Move Blank taps into any data source the company has, it activates it, and we generate the perfect personalized content for every individual on the other side of a marketing communication. And we work with some of the biggest companies in the world, 700 of the biggest brands, everyone from E-Trade to Hilton to, uh, um, trying to remember which ones I can say and not say. We've got every major airline in the US except for one. We've got five of the largest 10 consumer banks in the world, mm -hmm. uh, on and on. So some of the biggest companies you've, you've heard Big of. Enterprises. Big enterprises. For the most part, but we have a really new and thriving mid-market business as well. So these are the D2C brands, the fast-moving companies, the disruptors that are, that are showing up. Okay, so could you take the product and break it down just a little bit? So yeah. it's customizing the content. Is there a specific channel? Are we talking an email medium or text? And yeah. How does it so change? We, and so we started out an email. So the initial premise, uh, started out an email, you'd put a little block of HTML with an image tag inside it. And the moment the email opened, this is like nine, 10 years ago, 
we'd be able to detect contextual factors like the weather outside, time of day, the device that you're on, and tailor the right content for you. We generate the image on the fly and, and show you that. And then fast forward five or six years later, what we learned was that enterprises have lots of great data assets. Uh, it could be APIs that they built, it could be CSV files, it could be the dozen data platforms or other marketing technologies. And we tap into all of those. And that's where the real value started to be seen on the MoveLink platform. And we could you know, generate the perfect loyalty message for you by tapping into CrowdQuist and showing that you know, when, when an, uh, an, an, an email gets sent out, and personalized after it is sent, we show you what loyalty tier that you're on uh, based on your zip code. There could be a weather-based offer. Uh, we might know your recent behaviors on the website. You added something to a basket, you search something, and that auto-populates into the email. So a million people getting a communication get a million perfect, unique experiences based on data about them or the state of the business. And and we started out, yeah, we started out in email, but now mobile push notifications. Uh, we're powering those. We're doing content, marketing content inside mobile, and we're exploring lots of new channels like SMS, landing pages, digital signage, on and on. And is, so it sounds like it's less about the real-time adjustment of the content as it might have been in the beginning and more about leveraging the data behind the scenes to customize accordingly. Yeah, if you dig into the the marketer's workflow, they spend weeks and months just trying to get the data together, organize it, plan their campaigns, and uh, it, it makes it very hard for them to pivot quickly. So the weeks and months that happened before, suddenly you put a piece of content that is uh, sometimes even evergreen in your marketing campaign, and after it sends somewhere between the send and when it gets opened, it generates it all, pulling from the data sources and assembling the whole thing to be the perfect thing that you see. So it's a big workflow benefit. People save a ton of time. And do and there's a lot of things they don't have to do anymore with uh, once they're using Movable Inc. And it's a better customer experience because everything's personalized to that individual in ways that were impossible before. What kind of lift do people see when they switch from one size fits all to customization? Is there kind of an industry standard on how much our you know conversion improves? Yeah, it completely varies. We've had um, companies. Uh, elevate their revenue anywhere from 10 to you know north of 100%. We've had click-through rates. Uh, Forrester did a total economic impact study, 373% increase in engagement, and uh, I believe a 40% reduction in production cycles. And um, over and over, we see that kind of thing happening with our customers that are seeing more revenue, more orders placed, reducing the cycle to assemble, uh, assemble emails. And it's also enabling ideas that were never possible before. Right, we have, a, we have a company that does um, offers inside. It's a big financial services firm. There was no way they could plug in this API and have millions of versions of an email generated. And simply being able to do that was a huge win for this company. And it, that entire program runs on Movable. So you make it sound like this was an easy thing to put together. You guys are a big team and a big company. What makes this dynam dynamic use of data so complicated? Why is this so hard for folks? Yeah, uh, the, the, the legacy MarTech companies, it, it's a pretty complex product. First, the data sits in all, all sorts of places. So you, you'd think we're in a world today where, and we thought this when we first started the company, and that's why we didn't focus on a lot of the data companies we're already managing, because we thought that was a solved problem. It turns out it wasn't. They've got a data warehouse and a CDP and a CRM, and they're still passing around CSV files. And their website might be a source of data. We actually have some technology that can change a web page into a RESTful API. So all the stuff is scattered in different places to be able to assemble it, to transform it, to get it ready for marketing, and then to even figure out how do I generate content? You know, you might have amazing targeting in a hundred different segments, but your marketing team isn't going to be able to keep up with the production costs of generating a hundred unique pieces of content. And so we say, let's just generate it for you. We build a technology that can take the data, activate it, and generate that perfect content for every single individual. So that, that was the hard part that, uh, that was a problem companies really bring us in to solve. You know, it's interesting. When you're talking about all these siloed data sets that you're aggregating, I think that I just my gut's telling me, I'm, I'm assuming there's some sort of professional services component to this. How much are you guys involved with helping people get organized through your tool in order to allow them to use the tool? Is that uh, is that a part of the, the game here, or can it you is. flip a switch? 
it, well, especially in the early days, people didn't really know how to think about, you know, it was sometimes we describe Move Blank as a Swiss army knife. Mm -hmm. uh, well, if you've got all these tools, what can you do with it? It's hard to even explore the types of ideas. So from day one, we invested in that client services team. We call it the client experience team. We have a client mm -hmm. strategy team as well. Uh, actually, uh, someone we both know, Allison Lindland, who you introduced me to many years ago, runs that She's client great. strategy team. She's wonderful She's yep. uh, and has built an exceptional team. And they're industry thought leaders. So there's a retail expert and a whole retail team, a financial services team, a travel and hospitality team, uh, on and on. And we help our customers come up with these ideas know what their strategies are, what kinds of data sets that they have at their disposal, and how do you turn this into ideas and use cases that make a lot of sense and have a high impact. And, you know, there's a technology piece of it, but I, I feel like a big differentiator for us is our services and strategies that we also bring to our clients that they wouldn't be able to perhaps come up with on their own. So we're a great sounding board for that and uh, catalyst for coming up with cool things. That is so important for an enterprise scale business like this. But it's funny, when most people set out as entrepreneurs in the tech world to start a company, it's the last thing they're thinking about, right? They're they're out thinking about how they're going to automate everything A to Z. They're going to build this, you know, self self-serve, self-sustaining technology. But a lot of successful companies require this type of division. How do you any tips for folks who are, you know, who are entering a space where they're thinking customer success or you know, you're, I like the phrase customer experience. Folks are going to have to come in and help. Any tips for how to think about how to set that up or ratios of how many people you need per client? How do you think about modeling out this operation and kind of get into this? Yeah, and it's fine. You know, maybe every company doesn't need a client services team. And I think if you're serving small business, it's a little bit more. Usually what you see with a small business software, MailChimp's a pretty good example. Usually the enterprises are the first to adopt something really new. It's expensive. It's complex to do things. But when there's a well-established set of processes and people know exactly what they're looking to get out of it, you know, then the mid-market market adopts it, then small business, and you can have people log in and know what they're trying to accomplish. So Salesforce did this to Siebel, MailChimp did this to, you know, the Cheetah Mails and the Epsilons from, from way back. Uh, however, you kind of have to fit into the mold of how this small business software firm does it. Enterprises have really disparate data. They've got different workflows. They've built layers and layers of things over the years, and they're all a little bit different. And so if you try to solve everyone's problem and put the solution in the product, you've got something that's so convoluted and hard to use, impossible to use. And uh, some enterprise software turns out like that, that they, they just shove everything in there. So I think what we strive for is like get 80% of that functionality in there and rely on your, get a good client services team that can do the last 20% or 10% and tailor it. And so it's really a platform you have to build with the best practices and make it easy for that last mile to happen, whether it's like no code or writing code, whoever, whoever you're building for. And you don't, a lot of, uh, I was an engineer, you know, as an engineer starting a company, you, you don't want to hire salespeople and or a client services people, and you think everything can happen with code. And it's until you've lived in that world and talked to customers and, you know, I, I had the benefit of living in the sales world for a while, you realize what an important part these people play in salesperson navigating complex hierarchies within companies and client services people being able to come up with a thousand ideas and quickly iterate, right? You talking to your customer that happens way faster than what you can bake into the product. And you can just kind of cherry pick the most interesting ideas and the patterns that are reoccurring, put those in your product, but then give the, the, the team the freedom to do innovative things that might be a little bit more bespoke. How are you thinking about success for the client services side of the world? Success meaning how do we know our client services people are being successful? Yeah, that the operation's working and you're nailing it. How do you think about that? Yeah, uh, it is really understanding what the metrics our clients are tracking and making sure we're aligned to it. And it isn't, uh, it isn't imagination or hallucination that's happening here. So really establishing what does success look like? And every client could be a little bit different. For some people, it could be redeeming an offer as a success. For an e-commerce merchant, selling off their unprofitable, you know, discounting some, some things that they've excess supply for. So we do that in the sales process even and make sure the client services team really understands that and there's a good baton pass. 
and measure yourself against it. You know, have regular conversations. What are we trying to achieve? Where are we trying to get to over the course of a year or two? And do we have a game plan that is and, and measuring ourselves against that? Uh, so that is about the client success. And then internally, of course, as a SaaS company, uh, we look at the gross and net retention metrics and when are we upselling and are we are we getting greater usage of our product? Are people doing more sophisticated or advanced things with our product? And th- and we look at a ton of data. Now, these are all indicators that we're heading in the right direction. Uh, and and we have the data to see what the patterns are, what we have to get, what steps we have to get people through in order for them to be successful. And it's not always the thing that just pops into the client's head, the thing that they want. Uh, and I think that a little bit of a trust has to be built to allow a vendor to lead the way and at least share what's worked before, uh, what, what kinds of themes have worked before and what hasn't. Now, your superpower, looking at your background, I mean, obviously, of engineering roots, but you're, you, you've also got this sales capability. And now you've built a large sales force, I assume. How many people on your sales team? Uh, probably over 100, 100 people. Yeah, that's a yeah. good-sized organization. Yeah. What have you figured out? I mean, it's enterprise. I'm assuming you guys are doing field sales. What are some of the things you've learned along the way where you're like, hey, this is what everyone needs to know if they're going to make this work that you didn't know maybe when you started on this journey? Yeah. Yeah. And I would say I'm, I'm a generalist and I'm very happy that way more talented salespeople and sales managers have joined the company since then to take it to the next level. But I think the the good thing to do as a founder is to wear some of these different hats. So you you feel the pain, you're in those conversations. And so the early days was me stumbling around uh, with our first rep, second rep, and doing it in uh, maybe not the best way possible, but learning enough about the kind of person I'm looking for to be able to lead that function. And so it is, you know, from zero to let's say 1 million, 2 million in ARR, you know, the founder's got to be pretty close to the, the sales process and understand what's working because a lot of what your customer is saying is going to make it into your marketing materials, into your sales deck. Mm-hmm. So the tight connectedness, I think that's the advantage we have as founders that because you can't hire anyone, you're doing the pitch deck, you're writing the marketing copy on the website, you are the product manager also uh, figuring out what features to build. And so these things feel very tightly coupled and connected. Uh, but of course, you have to start to specialize this stuff. So the next wave, there's a step function, you shift up to the next gear and player coach type of sales leader who's out there selling for themselves, but also cultivating a team. And they're creating a little bit more professionalism and standards in the process. And for us, you know, zero to 20 million in ARR was, was that point that, that that worked pretty well. But suddenly that starts to break down and you've got to step up to the next level, which is a little bit more of a hierarchical sales team team selling. It's not just a seller. We have a partner salesperson. There's specialization for the BDRs who are generating the leads. There's marketing, you know, product marketing stuff they need. There's um, collateral, kill sheets, one pagers, references. And so it really takes a team to be able to sell effectively at the highest level. And that machine starts to look pretty different too. And the same person who was successful in the early days isn't necessarily the person who can make it to the next level. It's great if that happens, but uh, just recognizing that change, that the company is going through a transition. And when I, I've seen a lot of other SaaS companies and these stall points seem to happen, and I, I know what, what they're hitting at that point and where they are sort of stalling out. And you know, we, we've learned things the hard way. I think New York Tech was younger in terms of technology companies. You and I are both, both been here a while when you can fit everyone into a bar that was in New York Tech. And now I don't even know. I mean, it's second biggest place we're in a VC in the US. So there's a lot of, um, I think there's a generational shift that's even happened in New York and a lot, a lot of that knowledge and learnings, that's only good for the ecosystem, right? The next time around, people are doing it smarter. Okay, so there's these breaking points in companies. We all know this, where old process communication styles have to go out the window. You found any rules of thumb for how to identify when systems are going to start breaking? Any guidance on that? You can feel it. I mean, if you have, if you're measuring things, uh, I, I wrote an, I wrote an email to my company in the early days, which was early days. It's like a, you're flying a biplane and you can stick your head out the window and kind of know what direction and you're, you're turning that plane left, right. But at some point you are flying a 787 
And you can't rely on that. You have to rely on instrumentation. Otherwise, you're going to crash the plane. And you have to trust not your senses. You got to trust the instruments. Um, and I, I would I would draw analogy. You also have to in a real company. You also have to get the qualitative. You know, kind of dig in deep. But you have to have things well instrumented. Otherwise, you can't keep up with all the things that are happening. So the difference when you're ten people sitting around a table, everyone knows every single deal. Everyone knows every problem, every objection. It's easy to get everyone on the same page. But as you start to scale, knowledge gets a little bit more siloed, and communication. There's just a lot of different nodes to hop. And so that starts to become more complex. And if you instrument things well, you can start to catch things like something's off in this one area, or this new region's a problem, or retention's a problem here, or we seem to be spending a lot of marketing dollars over here and not getting the results. That gives you a little bit of that early warning indicator that, hey, we got to dig in deep. Let's drill down on that. And so you know, we have a KPI report. I look for the top 10 things that are outperforming and ask, should we triple down on that thing? And the bottom 10%, like what's underperforming? And um, should we keep doing that? Or does there something, is there something that has to be urgently fixed in that area? You can't look at everything, but if you have a process kind of like that, things bubble up that are working really well and the problem points kind of reveal themselves where you have to focus. Okay, so larger organization, you got to move to data and dashboards. You've got your mid-level management coming in, your experts who are whiz kids at sales or marketing or this whole stuff. What's the, um, is there a thing that you picked up from your sales leadership that you brought in to level up your organization? Something you learned where you were like, wow, okay, awesome. Didn't see that coming. Is there any um, big insight that came out of watching these pros come in and build that? Yeah, and I, I have to give credit. I think in New York, we didn't have, you know, Salesforce is not not here in New York at that scale. I know they have an office here and everything now, but back then, you didn't have these companies that had reached $500 million in ARR, $1 billion in ARR that you could hire people from that were leaving that could teach you how to do it. And as it turned out, the movable ink way of doing things was a little different. This is not a sale that, hey, I have an ESP over here. Let's go switch over to a different ESP. And you can hire people who've been in that industry. You really have to sit down. It's a new type of product, a new way of using it. And so we needed creative thinkers. So we were successful in promoting from within. So the people who lead our sales organization, our, our president and chief client officer right now, started out as our VP of customer success about eight years ago. Uh, we made him our CRO. And now our, our chief revenue officer now started out as the first seller doing upsells for the company. And I gave him a ridiculous target to hit. I think I, 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 I wasn't good at setting targets in the early days. You're picking some numbers out of thin air and people are excited. But amazingly, he exceeded that target with like, you know, seven or eight months in the year. He, he, I gave him a 2 million target and I think he hit like 2.7 million in that, in that first year. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that's advisable every single time, but you don't right. know. And, and, um, he has proven we we throw more opportunity at him. Run a small team, killed it running the small team. Go take over all of upsells, killed it there, and now is our chief revenue officer. And he has been, I'd say, the credit to anyone who's quickly um, gotten to that next level. They're learning machines, right? They're just picking up new things. Uh, they aren't falling back on a dogma of like this is how we did it way back then, and they're constantly revisiting because they perhaps haven't done that before. Uh, same with our VP of North American sales. Started out, uh, I met his mother at a VC's event sitting at the dinner table and her son wanted to get into startups. He was a lawyer. He came in as a BDR, right? First on paper, this just didn't make sense. And a later stage company would probably not even clear him past recruiting. But that's the great thing about startups, right? You can You can kind of get in there and prove yourself. And he killed it, has gone through multiple levels, is now our VP of North American sales, came in as a BDR. So there's a lot of stories like that over and over at Movable Inc. And it's keep an eye on talent, keep an eye on people who learn quickly and keep throwing more at them, more responsibility, uh, more, uh, more latitude in how they do things, unconventional thinking. And you might be surprised at like the great stuff, the great stuff that, that produces. So you asked a question about what did, what did we learn? I think for us, bringing partners into the equation, 20 years ago, if you're doing enterprise uh, software, enterprise sales, every company was very sharp elbowed. So if you buy from Oracle, they want to sell you everything from Oracle. If you buy from you know Adobe, you got to buy everything from there. 
and there's no room for partners. And we flipped the model and said, let's embrace every partner. Even ones I thought were competitive in the early days. And we'd find a win-win solution where the thing that they do is complementary. They've got a unique data asset and how can we build a unique content experience? And so we've done thousands of integrations. We work with hundreds of technology companies and probably partner better than any SaaS company I've ever seen. And that was a, an unconventional thing, right? We didn't, um, we, we learned by someone advocating for it. We had a great partner leader and Adam Stambleck, our president, recognized that that was a unique opportunity. And other companies now are, are kind of borrowing that playbook. And so the idea with a partner is you're going to integrate with their technology, maybe package something, and then their existing relationship is now a place where you can sell your product in. Is that is yeah? That if you uh, you know if you want to steal this idea, if you go to exchange.movableinc.com, you'll see all these great partner integrations, the use case. There's sometimes videos of like what the the integration looks like, and it's all productized in in the product. So. The, the, you know, that's an example. And we have a team that will vet which partnerships make sense, our business development team, set the rules of engagement, we'll prioritize them. And then we have a partner sales team that goes into execution mode and works with the salespeople on the other side, and our own salespeople and pitches these joint solutions. Uh, because data is kind of the fuel for what makes move like work. Right. So you're finding data companies more mostly and then trying to layer your technology on top. And have yeah. them help promote it into their ecos into their customer base. That That's right? right. So recommendations like Rich Relevance, Sertona, uh, loyalty like CrowdTwist, loyalty data like CrowdTwist, mm -hmm. um, Pega for next best action, kind of the, the brain of your company, uh, Curalate, you know, social social data. So on and on, and it can you know it ends up being a win win for for each company. That's awesome. Great advice. Now you guys have. You know, and maybe the internet is wrong and lying, and I think it probably is. But Crunchbase says you guys have raised about forty million dollars. Yep, that's about right. And for the scale of the company, that's not a crazy amount based on your headcount. You guys are no on LinkedIn. You're clocking over four hundred folks now. Is that right? Yeah, we're about four hundred thirty people now. Right. So, did you have a unique view or perspective on how to capitalize the company? Any wisdom for entrepreneurs who kind of when not to take money or when to? Something you figured yeah, out? Yeah, and I, I give credit to, well, my parents too. You know, I, I grew up in India, lived there until I was eight years old. And I think a little bit of an ethic of trying to make a dollar stretch. Mm -hmm. And we came over here with a thousand dollars and a couple of suitcases back in 1983. And, you know, that was sort of, you know, anything that is waste was just like really, it was just unaccepted. And uh, I have to give credit to one of our board members, Matt Gorn at Contour Ventures, mm -hmm. very similar philosophically. So it wasn't like, hey, I want to raise $100 million and throw money into everything. It was always test your way into it, get enough capital to do what you want to do. It forces you, forces you to have a clear game plan. It not Don't just say, I'm going to spend it on marketing. Exactly what are you going to go spend it on? Right. What do you, how, do you, how do you test if that's working effectively? And then how do you scale that investment? And then our, our CFO, John Herman. So I think the three of us somehow a little bit of an alignment on it's, it's okay to spend more money, but we should be really clear at this point on how, what's that return on that investment and knowing where the dollars go and tracking those metrics and making sure we don't kind of backslide and just so easy to kind of shoot money out there and see it go into nothing and uh, waste it. And then you're in a tough spot if you want to raise your next round. So you don't have a private jet. <laughs> did you want to send me one we, um, yeah i'll do this no, podcast we, with you mark if you if you send me one there we go in the air uh, yeah. we had uh, uh maureen farrell on who's now at the new york times talking about uh we work she wrote a book on that yeah um there's and a it's a of, cultural thing right yeah you, you have the we work culture you know I, I think we've all read about it and seen it in the news and contrast that with the amazon culture the, the famous story of like buying doors and nailing them down and turning them into desks it sends a message too to to the employees, and it's setting a cultural tone. And other people start to embrace it and understand what's important at a company to to measure things, to know what matters, to track progress, um, and and it creates the right discipline as you get to be a much bigger company, and people know how things are done. Sounds like it's at every layer of the organization. I mean, having a great investor like Matt Gorin, who's got this perspective as well, reinforcing how you feel about it. That's um. You're kind of baking it in. 
Yeah. And look, there there are moments in time early on. I get it as an entrepreneur. You're like, if someone would just give me that $5 million check, I promise I'll be disciplined. You, you, it it causes some pain, right? There's trade-offs you make early on. There's things, but you can only say that in retrospect. I can only say that in retrospect, which is it was good for us. That learning that you couldn't have gotten without really understanding how efficient this thing can be, what makes it really tick, we wouldn't have gotten it if we had raised three times as much capital. Right. Now, you've, you've kind of built this the, the old school way, trial by fire. Your whole career, you've been earning, working your way through the ranks. You know, everything's probably been new at some level at every stage of the game. It's not like you were under um, you know, someone's wing who had done this many times before or otherwise or had followed a couple startups through to exit and then done it. What's been the hardest part of the journey for you so far? I, I, for, for all the entrepreneurs who are struggling and kind of wondering if the struggle gets better later on, I'd say the hardest part definitely is getting to product market fit. It, there's just so much uncertainty of limited capital, uh, whether you have a spouse, husband, wife, whatever, you're, you're just watching your ba- bank balance deplete. You're not even sure if you're on the right path, if you're going in the wrong direction, if you have to pivot, there's a sunk cost. Like it's just really personally tolling. You, you don't know if you're doing the right things or not. And so things get better. They're good problems to have after that point. It doesn't mean you won't have other existential threats or new things thrown at you, but it's not that feeling like, wow, this, this grind, this might end up being nothing. You're constantly waking up in the early the days. You're like, after this week, this might be nothing. We might be dead as a company. And you're default dead, right? You're trying to prove to the world this company deserves to be alive. I love and that. after product market fit, you, you start to feel that a little bit. And although there are challenges and things and you might have slower growth or something else may happen, uh, they're generally all solvable problems. If you And you have the breathing room because you've got some capital in the bank, hopefully, to, to be able to, to tackle it. Um, so there's early days. I will say later days, the stress can be, you know, you can carry yourself psychologically through something, but you're also thinking about how 430 people or however you have have to carry everyone else, um, forward to, or you have to communicate clearly what some of these challenges are and invite conversation. And it becomes more about not just calling a direction going, but uh, communication just becomes everything as you, as you, uh, get to those later stages. So as you think about the, the journey along the way, are there any anecdotes or stories that you tell at dinner parties? Like what's the, what's the movable ink narrative when you're trying to get a laugh or bring people into the moment? Uh, a laugh or a cry? <laughs> uh, yeah. Back, so back in 2013, you know, we, we do, we power email marketing and our stuff dynamically loads inside emails right after black Friday that year. And I think this was like one and a half weeks after it, Suddenly, our content started breaking in email, and we had no idea why. We got like a deliverability consultant and trying to figure out if we're setting things up the wrong way. Uh, then a blog post arrived on Google's website, maybe another couple of weeks later. Uh, they had rolled out a fix to start caching content and proxying it. And literally, if there's an image, everyone would see the same version of that image. And so it would break the move blank content. All right. And, you know, by this point, we were. I don't know, 2013, maybe we we're a 70 person company, 80 people, meaningful size and real customers, real revenues and big enterprises. And people were, people were really worried. They didn't know what was going on. We're trying to dig into it. And on the one hand, you could say, well, Google's only, uh, what, 30% of our opens or something, and it'll oh still work for everyone else. That's but the rug that's, getting pulled out from under you. Yeah, that, that is a big deal. So it was unclear. Clear, you know, then we learned Google changed something and we realized we had to talk to Google. We, we just have to and find a way. So I asked all of our investors, nothing really came of it. No one even knew who was responsible for Gmail on, on at Google. And uh, the person we both know, Alison Lindland, somehow in her network, she knows, I think, uh, a third of the planet, uh, found a path. At least. At, at least, least. Found a path to the product manager uh, to the product manager for Gmail. And it, that guy was willing to give us a 20 minute meeting, me and Michael. Mm. So I've never prepped for a meeting as uh, thoroughly as this one here. And so Michael, my co-founder, our CTO, and I prepped a pitch deck 
And Google was doing this for good reasons, for privacy and security. And we felt we could provide a fix that would meet Google's needs, but still deliver a better consumer experience where people can see kind of unique content. I call it the ugliest pitch deck you've ever seen because we stripped <laughs> it down, made it totally ugly because we said it's going to be circulated with the, the engineering team and we can't look too salesy on this. So this has to be something only an engineer could love and not feel yeah. like they're being sold to. So we, we did that, had the meeting, gave them an example of a technical fix, passed this no cache header inside the images and override it. And they can still get the IP, IP masking and uh, mask the user agent, things like that. And then crickets, nothing happened. Uh, we didn't hear anything, a couple more months, getting really nervous. And I end up hearing about this group called MAWG, M-A-A-W-G, Messaging Anti-Abuse Working Group that meets in San Francisco. It's got all the anti-spam people, very techie, very inside baseball on email. You'd be nominated to join the group. I found a way to get nominated, pay the few thousand dollars, told this the uh, product manager, Gmail and Yahoo!, that I was going to be there for the MOG meeting. You happened to be there. When they said, yes, why don't we grab a few minutes? I booked a flight and like basically made the whole trip happen simply around that. We chatted for 10 minutes and, and uh, the product manager emailed said, yeah, the, 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 the recommendation you guys made, that made sense. I, we're rolling that out. If it's not already out, it'll be rolling out the next week. And oh, Yahoo wow, the whole time they were working answer. on it. Yeah. No, you know, it was all like... Boy, that probably would have been a lot more relaxing if they had said something to you. It would, yeah. Like, no answers. I sent a couple follow-up emails again, like no answers. And so it was just like, get on a plane, show up, get the FaceTime, right. never give up. And even Google and Yahoo might be willing to change something if you have a good reason and, and you make a case. What did you take from that story? What did that teach you? Don't ever quit. Don't ever quit. Um, no matter how dark something seems, there's always a path, right? If you can't see it right away, uh, kind of triangulate, ask different people for advice. But if, you, if you've got something worth keeping, worth saving, don't ever quit. Awesome. Now, in, in the marketing tech world, you're, in, you're deep into it. And there's probably a bunch of stuff on your roadmap. Are there things that you guys need or want done that other people could go and build? You know, things that you're not giving away roadmap. Like what, what should people be doing to help the industry? What does your industry need? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of MarTech companies building lots of interesting things. Uh, we're building some of them. We have a bunch of partners. There's an ecosystem, uh, everything. So, so we do the um, content personalization inside of emails. There's companies that use AI to build subject lines. Uh, there's cross-channel deployment platforms. There's data management platforms, CDPs, whole acronym soup. All that is great. Um, I am curious about this next wave of companies, you know, Web3 companies that are using blockchain. And it just when you start to really think about it and go deeper and deeper, these things have the potential to be very disruptive to the old way of doing things. You know, even Snowflake as a company, which is like the most high, highest performing SaaS company in history. Uh, if there's an alternate way of thinking about that, about data management, uh, that, that could disrupt entire industries. So. And I, I think older company, we're not even that old, but we are so deep into executing on things that we're doing. It takes a special team to go deep on the stuff and start thinking about it. So this is a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs to think about new architectures, new ways of building things that, you know, and, and to think about how does this better the customer's experience, the customer, the market, or whoever you're serving. And not just technology for technology's sake, but does this enable new types of things that weren't possible before that are really valuable? So that is a hugely the interesting area. world is interesting. I mean, I, I think for people who haven't heard the phrase yet, Web3 is probably one of the most incredible ways of kind of rebranding what has been historically blockchain or crypto and broadening it out beyond currency. Yeah. And it's the idea of taking ownership where it's centralized with a company and distributing it out so we can have these projects that are owned by a lot. I think it's really open source with a ownership model. What's interesting about it is, uh, you know, I, I think we're seeing this real question of social organization because ownership is rarely around how humans organize, right? That's why we 
you know, if you're capitalist or socialist, whatever it is, it's around what motivating systems. It's not about who gets rich. Everyone dies eventually. It's long-term how we are organizing as humans to achieve social goals. So this is a, I view Web3 actually as a huge social experiment. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch, seeing how much we can change the ownership concept of how businesses are done and whether that works. And there may be places where it works really well and maybe in movable ink land, um, you need a more traditional corporate structure and leadership team to navigate effectively. So uh, this, is a, this is an interesting moment. I think you know, a lot of philosophers for centuries have been talking about you know, um, different ownership structures on an kind of economic level. And I think the web is about to force the experiment through Web3. Yeah. And there's a lot of different things it impacts at the same time. You mentioned currencies, but uh, DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations, you know, how decisions get made, things like that, enforced in code. Uh, that's a different thing. Artificial scarcity in NFTs, uh, owning your own data. You know, this whole some of the biggest companies today are about accumulating your data and controlling access to it and creating advertising models uh, that could get blown apart. So, rarely does a new thing come out that has such a broad number of applications. And some of those are good, and some of those are going to fail. You know, some some of those just that people won't jump onto it. But there's so much experimentation that can happen here. Yeah. That uh, you know, it, it's it's exciting to look at and think about. And I wish I had more free time to go even deeper on this. Yeah, never a dull moment in the innovation game. Tell you that. Yeah. Every time you think we're at a tail end of some innovation curve, it changes. It does. The whole landscape changes. Um, you've been in the New York tech community for a long time. I think we, you know, we met well over a decade ago, and it was the predecessor to Movable Inc. Um, and you've been around and we both watched the community change and, and we're not the old guard. And I, I know I said this one on the pod before people have a short memory in the tech community because the, the community turns over so quickly, but there are folks in the nineties doing stuff in New York. I don't know if we're third or fourth or fifth generation, but we've been in it for a little bit now. One of the interesting trends, I think that I didn't see coming as much, uh, when I was a younger entrepreneur and VC, but now kind of getting to be the older side of the game, is that there are people who want to graduate from the startup community, right? There are people who don't want to be classified as a startup founder anymore. They want to be classified as an executive of a more mature company. Where are you finding your peer support now? How are you thinking about you know, yourself as an executive you're no longer a scrappy startup guy. You have a 400 plus person organization. That's not even small, right? That's, um, how do you think about that psychological shift? Anything to impart on what that transition has been for you? Yeah, it, it's not an easy thing. And many CEOs don't make that jump between uh, being the founder, the person coming up with ideas to establishing systems that help you scale. So Creation, you know, founders are usually pretty good at that. And, you know, if you've been successful and got to certain product market fit, you're probably a, able to synthesize lots of different things, put them together and come up with an interesting idea. Uh, often you don't find the same set of skills in like scaling something. So it, you have to realize, look inward and look at what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And so, you know, I, I looked internally and said, I need to complement myself with a good team that does this stuff really well. And so our sales leadership, our customer success leadership, the finance function, the legal function, and you know, where do I get my energy to? You know, where uh, I've told my senior team, you know, really just introspect. What are you really good at? Uh, what do you? Where do you get your energy? And where does the company need you right now? And the and ideally try to find a mix. Sometimes you'll have to do stuff that doesn't give you energy. You have to kind of grind through. There's moments like that. But for the long term, to try to put yourself kind of be self-aware because we can compliment you, right? I, I've complimented myself with our leadership team. Uh, the way another executive is really good at certain things, they can find a lieutenant who does something really well or a peer uh, or, or you know, even me as a sounding board. And to just be kind of self-aware and you get to shape your own career, right? Like there's an opportunity, you've earned the right and gotten things to a certain point and you can shape the team the way you kind of that best serves the company, but also serves your energy and what you're good at. I love that. Now, you moved around a lot as a kid, if I remember. Um, 
I know you you were you started off your your life. I think well, you were eight when you said when you moved to the states from India. Yeah, uh, I lived in three different places in India. So my family is South Indian, but I was born in the north in wow. Jamshedpur. Lived in Calcutta for a couple of years, and uh, I think there was something. I think there was a better business opportunity. My parents told me about. Uh, they moved us down to Madras, thinking, "Oh, we're out of this like tough situation." And then a drought hit in the Madras. And uh, when COVID started, I was asking my mother for some advice. And I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. And I'm like, was it a couple months? She's like, no, it was two years. The drought was two wow. years. So th there was water rationing. And she told me stories that um, we'd get a slot in the morning uh, and you would get a ticket and you'd have to use it in the morning at like 3 or 4 a.m., get up, stand in line, be on other people, collect all the water that you get for the day for drinking, for cooking, for bathing. You kind of have to get it. If you miss it, you're that out sounds of stressful. that window. Yeah. So she was afraid of like not waking up on time. Mm -hmm. So you had to do that. And then um, she told me this recently. I didn't even know this back then. The mayor of uh, Madras asked everyone to put buckets on top of the building to collect rainwater when it rained. And if they went walked around and if there were buildings that hadn't done that, they would shut off the electricity. So huh. it was a stick. It was not a carrot. It was a stick <laughs> to say, you, you, you do this uh, in order to make, help us all survive. And those were good stories and lessons when COVID, the pandemic started. And I told, I shared that story with a company, not even thinking at the start that we were going to last this long, right? I thought maybe it'd be over in a couple months. But um, bounced around three places, came to the US, lived in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. By the time I was in eighth grade, I'd been in nine different schools. Wow. So I think that constant change, uh, I hated it as a kid going from one place to the other. Uh, and then finally settled in high school for four years and college. So for a while, I never lived in a place longer than four years. And New York's been like a nice place to kind of settle down. At the same time, uh, the thing that you didn't love then, I crave adventure. I crave like going, wanting to see new places. And I think it's also made me really adaptable. I'm really comfortable with change and chaos and things changing up around me. And I have to remind myself that not everyone went through those same experiences. and Not everyone is comfortable with, with that level of change. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a weird kind of formative thing as you go through as a kid that makes you who you are and a little bit becomes your superpower. Be if, you know realizing that's not a normal thing and that's not how most people grow up. And I, I assume that's helped you in entrepreneurship. It did, yeah. I wasn't really afraid of. Uh, I was more afraid of not doing something meaningful to me. You know, uh, I, I had to go create something and. Uh, it was my first job after college. I did a couple of internships and, you know, college was fun. You get to wax on philosophical ideas and, you know, topics. And my first job out of school, I was at Cisco, which is a wonderful company, but it was a big company in the late nineties. And there was a new campus building popping up every month. And I felt like a drop in a bucket. And within nine months, I'm like, I'm miserable. This is, this is not for me. This is what like working is like. And I don't think I, I hadn't been exposed to startups. And the first one I did after that, I quit my job within nine months uh changed my perception and i'm like there's an energy here this is what i'm meant to be doing and i you know did that startup for for a number of years and i realized i was going to have to go start something myself it was just too exciting to go figure out it's like putting the pieces of a puzzle together to go figure out uh, to, to build something that had never existed before uh so and you've pulled yeah. it off you've yeah pulled it off you. um you know with all of your success and the journey you've been on you've been on this for more than a decade now What's the most important you think you've learned as an entrepreneur? What could you leave behind? A bit of wisdom. Yeah. Um, th this, this may not be relatable to a lot of people, but I was, a, I was a geek. I read a lot. We moved around a lot. Straight A student, good at math and science, that kind of stuff. I was not an athlete. You know, I was a scrawny Indian kid, probably a year younger than uh, the, the other kids in my grade. And I looked like a 11-year-old when... Some of my classmates look like 17 or 18 years old. So, you know, I couldn't play on an athletic team and be competitive. Um, but somehow I, I shot up later in like late high school and then in college, I got into martial arts uh, in, in, a, in a bigger way. And there was a internship I did in Pratt & Whitney. Uh, this is like mid 90s or so. And wanted to go to the next level and somehow found this school. And this is when, uh, if you're a, a UFC fan now, or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu first started like making its, uh, you know, Hoist Gracie saw that, mm -hmm. saw all the sure. things were happening, and found a school that w was teach taught Muay Thai, some of the Filipino martial arts. It was a Jeet Kune Do school, 
as well as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. The teacher had worked with Hoist and Horion and the rest of those guys. So at some point, he's like, hey, would, would you like to train for a fight? I'm like, sure. And got into this thing and we started trading for, it was not called MMA yet, didn't have the same rules, but shoot fighting rules, which is essentially like kickboxing rules plus jujitsu and you can do uh, grappling. So four hours a day after uh, my work day, I'd eat a little bit of dinner, go train, get my butt kicked, uh, go as far as someone my weight, it was like 160 back then, and then someone 180, then 200, then 220. And uh, you learn a lot, right? It, it scared me. It scared the crap out of me when I first started doing that. But uh, I think for a kid who is, would, and for a lot of engineers and types of people who think there's always an intellectual answer to something, sometimes I think it helped me psychologically toughen up and push through pain, push through difficult moments. And once you've done that, you realize, you know, even if it's been many years, you've done it before, you can get back to that place. And so, uh, yeah, I think doing something that is different, a different type of challenge for you and pushing through is worthwhile. And the thing that scares you a little bit, because you can draw from that store and know what you're really capable of. And that mentality has gotten us through difficult times at Move Boy. Did you win the fight? The fight got canceled, unfortunately. There was some sort <laughs> of a licensing issue. Like, uh, that might have been great. It sounds like for yeah. the better. Sounds like yeah. for the better. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, like... Uh, you know, leading up to it, like you, you get the nerves and it was oh, the terrifying. sparring stuff, but the, uh, and then it took me several, a, a while before I kind of got back in there. And then I was older and kind of gotten out of it. So as a hobbyist, then I kind of dropped in and out, but, um, yeah, it was just a really cool, there's so many things when you're sparring, you also learn a lot, uh, that Mike Tyson quote, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. You know, that, that is true of startups. Uh, it's also true that you, once you get comfortable, when you, when you start sparring with like a new person, uh, you can kind of tell because they, they seize up a little bit. There's heavier breathing, their muscle, and you get a read on that after you've been doing this for a little while. And suddenly that big bodybuilder type of guy, you're like, wait a second, he's, he's a little freaked out and he's tiring out because he's breathing heavy. And, uh, and, and you, if you keep calm and kind of move around, you can control the pace of the fight. And like, you can see things happening before they do. There's all this like, stuff you start to be able to read about fast moving situations and even you know the psychology of the person across from you vec thank you for being on the show today and sharing a lot of wisdom with us i really appreciate it awesome great to catch up again mark awesome having vivek on today i've known him for a long time but until today i didn't know he was on his way to being an mma fighter at one point i love seeing him movable and crush it which they have been for a very long time is where I ask you to help the podcast. If you like what you heard, give us a like or a five-star review or share with a friend. Um, that helps people discover what we're doing here. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.